You're listening to Vibrant Potential. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Frickman. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Zach Bush, MD. He's one of the few triple board certified physicians in the country, and he's got expertise in internal medicine, endocrinology and metabolism, as well as hospice and palliative care. So this guy has been in every area of medicine. The breakthrough science that Dr. Bush and his colleagues have delivered offers profound new insights into human health and longevity. Back in 2012, he discovered a family of carbon-based redox molecules made by bacteria. If you don't know what that means, don't worry, you're about to find out. His team then went on to demonstrate that this chemical cellular network functions as an antidote to glyphosate. Some of you may know that by its brand name, Roundup. It also helps with the body in its processing of many other dietary, chemical, and pharmaceutical toxins that all disrupt our body's natural defense systems. This science has resulted in a revolutionary class of dietary supplements, including the product Restore. And that's really what we got into today. We talked about this product called Restore. The interesting thing is he says this supplement doesn't actually do anything. I'll tell you though, this has become my favorite supplement that does nothing to take multiple times a day. I've really been looking forward to getting Dr. Zach on my show for a while because it almost seems like the supplement helps with just about everything from brain fog to leaky gut to detoxification to healing autoimmunity and the list goes on. Pretty good for a supplement that does nothing, if you ask me. And in case you're new to listening to Vibrant Potential, then first of all, welcome. And second, this is not a commercial for Restore. I don't do that. What this is, is a fascinating conversation about a completely different paradigm that is emerging in science, which really has its origins in ancient wisdom. Doesn't it seem that so often the best new ideas are really old ideas? Anyway, without further ado, here's Dr. Zach Bush, MD. Welcome to Vibrant Potential. We provide you with everything you need to know to overcome stress, fatigue, and chronic health challenges, as well as optimizing your performance in fitness, relationship, and business. We use integrative health solutions and functional medicine strategies, including brain-based approaches, inspired fitness tips, emotional intelligence coaching, and spiritual growth techniques so you can live the life you want, connect deeply with others, and fulfill your vibrant potential. Your host is functional medicine expert, genetic biohacker, and triathlon coach, Dr. Chris Frickman. Dr. Zach, welcome to Vibrant Potential. Thank you, Chris, for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm so happy that you're here. I, I really appreciate it. As I said in the intro, uh, you have quite a background. And uh, if we delve into a little bit of that today, I think that's awesome. But I, I'm just going to like get right to the meat of it. We're definitely going to talk about Restore. That's like okay. the main thing I want to talk about here. I love this product that, that you have called Restore. And I just want to get a little bit of education um, for, for the listeners about what it is because 
Honestly, I've had a lot of questions, and I think you can answer them better than I can. That makes a lot of sense. Fantastic. And honestly, this product more than almost any other product that that I've used in my clinic, because I have been using Restore with some of my clients now, uh, this product, it's almost like, geez, it seems like it's good for what ails you. It's like, you know, it's it's good good for everything almost. So I just... You know, I I, I, I want to differentiate Restore from, you know, some some of the other products out there that are, you know, like the the juice products or something that are like, oh, I found this awesome berry on this forbidden planet on the top right. of this volcano and everybody that lives within 10 miles of this berry like lives to be 120 and stuff. And and those stories are um, sometimes, you know, they're, they're rooted in some some truth, but they, they tend to be sort of hypey and markety and and. It's sort of like, what is this product really? And so, and I really feel like Restore is not in that uh, genre at all. And, right. um, and I just want to do some differentiating for the listener. So Perfect. Sound, okay, awesome. So I'm going to ask the first question and then you just get going. Uh, you talk about redox potential, which, yep. which I uh, vaguely remember from chemistry class, meaning right. reduction and oxidation. And, um, and so we're talking about antioxidants and free radicals. And I'm wondering, can you describe what's, what's redox? What does that mean in the human body? And what does this really mean as far as what we've been doing with antioxidant therapies and free radical damages that we get from stress and that cause cancer and all these kinds of things? Like, how is this changing the conversation? Fantastic. So redox is uh, an understanding of the mitochondria. The mitochondria are these little bacteria-like organelles that live inside of our cells. And so uh, the average human cell has about 200 of these guys packed in there. And uh, when we're born, our neurons can have as many as 3,000 mitochondria in a single cell. So we have these huge teeming populations of these little non-human bacteria-like organisms inside of our cells. And the mitochondria is what allows us to become a multicellular organism. Single-cell organisms like bacteria do not have mitochondria. But any multicellular organism like a worm or a human, uh, where we have a liver and a kidney and all these different organs that are interacting in totally different tissue types, that requires mitochondria. And the reason for that is twofold. The mitochondria are super good at creating energy. And so they take fat and sugar as the only two fuels they run on. And so they take fat and sugar and they turn that into a single thing called adenosine triphosphate or ATP. Mm-hmm. And that ATP is the only fuel that the human cells run on. And so we have this very unique situation where we have non-human population that's eating all the fat and sugar in our diet and turning that into a single usable fuel for us. Redox signaling was discovered as an exhaust or a, a, a byproduct of the conversion of fat and sugar to ATP. It's done through the wall, a chain of enzymes in the wall of the mitochondria. And those enzymes put out these positive and negative charged molecules that we refer to as redox molecules. A reductant, as you mentioned, is the first part of that word, is a negative charged compound that can deliver an electron to a chemical reaction. An oxidant is something that will absorb an electron. It's a positive charged compound. So you have all these negative and positive charged molecules that are coming out as a byproduct of the fuel production of mitochondria. 
And we've come full circle in science to understanding these things. When I went through medical school in the 1990s, I was really told that these things were, as you mentioned, free radicals, which means they're really oxidative. They can tear apart tissue. They're damaging. So we need to clear them very quickly from the body or else they Some of them are stronger than others. Yes, absolutely. So some of those free radicals, there's one called a hydroxyl free radical, which is an oxygen and a hydrogen carrying a, a, a charge on it. That can be very damaging to cell membranes. It's the it's one of the most difficult ones to sop up. Uh, like our oral, our, our nutritional antioxidants that we think of, something like vitamin C and all these things, they actually don't mop up hydroxyl free radicals well at all. Um, and so uh, the antioxidants, alpha lipoic acid, all these, these actually will drive um, a lot of these uh, pathways towards an oxidative process. And so to have... And a reservoir to deal with this kind of exhaust all the time we thought was necessary for human life. And to some degree, that's true. But what we were missing in the 1990s that was really kind of discovered more thoroughly in the 2000s was that these redox molecules are not just waste product. They're not mm -hmm. harmful waste product. They're actually a communication network. Mm. That was a massive change in our understanding of how cells work. I mentioned that these mitochondria only exist in multicellular organisms where you have all these disparate specialties going on and they all have to coordinate first to just develop. So you have to, to turn from a, an egg and a sperm coming together to form a single cell. That single cell now starts replicating into identical cells. It's very much like a tumor where every cell is exactly the same as the previous. Then suddenly around replication two hundred. Very non-romantic way to say it. My my baby looks yeah. so much cuter than a tumor. <laughs> yeah, and in fact that embryo can become a tumor. It's called a molar pregnancy. Oh sure. And so a molar pregnancy is where there's a failure of that communication to happen, a failure of specialization, and it simply turns into a tumor that can actually kill a woman. So um, the difference between a tumor and a, a fetus is around replication two, 260, where you now have a ball of identical tumor-like cells, suddenly develop the ability of enough communication from all those mitochondria that they're able to say, hey, I'll go be a liver, you go be a kidney, you go be the brain. Okay. And suddenly you start to get these tumor-like cells differentiating into more defined roles in the body. Mm. All of that happens through this elegant communication network that's really orchestrated at the biochemistry level by these redox molecules. So My cancer. The, so the communication is, um, and, and you are just like, you have an encyclopedic uh, amount of information. So I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just have uh, some questions here. Uh, the communication that you talk about, just want to clarify, is that between from from human cell to human cell, or from uh, is it intracellular or intercellular? Uh, is it from mitochondria to mitochondria? Is it from the cell uh, up to another tissue like the brain, or is it uh, is it into the gut somehow with with bacteria? So, like, I feel like there's all these different things that it could be communicating with, and maybe it's all of it. But can you clarify that point? Perfect question. The, the, it begins inside a single cell. So the 200 mitochondria in a single cell is generating a communication network that's helping that cell respond to its environment. Mm -hmm. And so that environment may be, oh, suddenly there's 
oh, we're a multicellular organism. There's 300 other cells here. We could start to differentiate. We could start to take on unique roles. But it starts at that, the redox really functioning inside the cell to coordinate everything from differentiation to, in the long run, maintenance of the cell. And so there's an enormous amount of repair that goes into a normal day. Every single cell is damaged in a given day, and so there's constant repair needed. And that's really coordinated down at that intracellular level inside a single cell by these redox molecules. We used to think that that was really an isolated environment, but recently, in, in the last couple decades, we've realized that there's these fiber optic cables that go between the cells. Um, and so one cell can be attached to another by something called a gap junction, which mm. literally looks like a cable running between the two cells. Mm. And that allows these redox molecules, which do not, they don't function outside of a cell. They have to have the protected environment of the cytoplasm with a very controlled pH, very controlled osmolarity, and all these other biochemical requirements for these redox molecules to work because they're so ethereal. They react so quickly with the environment. They last even inside the cell for about a millionth of a second. And so it's just these flashpoints of information coming out. The amount of energy that's being produced by the mitochondria is so vast in a day that they actually produce so many of these that a millionth of a second is actually a very long time. And when you start to look at the accumulation of all these millionth of a second events, you get tons and tons of data very coherently expressed inside the cell by quadrillions and quadrillions and quadrillions of these little charges coming out of the mitochondria. And so uh, we're starting to realize that we can probably take a redox signal from a single cell and travel that through tissue for some distance by going through these gap junction fiber optic cable environments. Okay. You mentioned damage every day. I've heard it several, several times like, oh, we, have, we all get cancer every day. But then our immune system hopefully deals with it. Like that's kind of how it's talked about, at least what I've heard. Sure. Uh, that's what you're talking about, right? When you say there's some damage every day, would you – is that – Yeah. So um, probably unlikely that we're getting cancer every single day just because mm -hmm. the accumulation of injury has to be somewhere around 20,000 to 25,000 unrepaired injuries of the DNA before you'll get a cancer cell. So – um, there has to be quite an accumulation of unrepaired damage before you'll get cancer. And certainly in a healthy... At a diagnosable body, level or just at any recognizable level? Uh, for that first cell, you know, just at, down at the real raw root wow. of where the cancer starts, it takes 20,000 injuries uh, to the genome. Um, and so you know, to get that kind of accumulation of injury, there has to be a breakdown in communication long before that. I think that there's probably a run-up to the first cancer cell that typically is in the five to seven-year range, maybe as long as 20 years in some cancers before that first cell will start to divide and act like a cancer cell. Hmm. Interesting. So what we're seeing daily, though, is something as simple as walking out in the sunshine, we get massive amounts of radiation damage throughout the body. Mm -hmm. The skin takes the brunt of that, obviously, but there's gamma rays and all these X-ray radiation that's just coming through our body all the time. Even when we're sleeping in the dark, there's gamma rays coming through our bodies from supernovas out in space. There's radon radiation coming up from the Earth itself. So there's radiation damage even before you put a bite of food in your mouth or anything else that's happening in the body. So that has to be repaired constantly. And, and one really profound truth that you can use as a clinician or a, uh, just somebody out as a consumer is that you're, you can boil your entire health and longevity down to a single concept. And that's the fact that you're walking around right now with a rate of repair and a rate of injury. 
And if those things are perfectly equal, you do not age. You do not develop disease or disorder. If your rate of healing is faster than your rate of injury, you'll actually get younger at the biologic level. And so that's how I get so excited in clinic all the time is I see somebody come in. I don't care if they come in with acne, cancer, or anything in between. If we can shift that ratio where they're healing faster than they're injuring, then all bets are off as to what's going to happen because they have the potential to heal everything. Absolutely. That's an awesome way to say it. So just want to see if I can... I might have missed your answer, but the communication, I know you said that it is definitely starts inside the cell from mitochondria to mitochondria, and through these gap junctions, it's also, now we're, we're saying that it's either likely or proven, I'm not sure which, that we can communicate from cell to cell even. Where, does, where do the probiotics come in with this? Where do like the, you know, the good bacteria in the gut, where does that come into play? Because that's yeah. not, I, I always tell my patients, I, I'm curious if you talk about it like this, but I always tell my patients the digestive system isn't even inside the body. It's like, right, it's this tube that's sort of, it's not contiguously inside of the body the way the, way the, the kidneys are inside the body or something, right? Exactly. It is the outside world. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's, it's a passage through your body, but it, it really is considered by your body, your immune system as the outside world. Sure. Um, and so the thing that separates your gut from, you know, we'll say the inside, the lumen of that tube uh, or the outside world that's passing through your gut is separated from you by a single cell membrane. And this is the gut membrane that starts your sinuses, runs all the way down to the rectum. And that huge tube is made out of a single cell layer thick that in, in size that's half the width of a human hair. And so you have this minuscule little thin membrane that covers two tennis courts in surface area. It's the largest membrane in the body. So you have this huge two tennis court surface area covered by a picture of a piece of cellophane that's half the width of a human hair. And that's your entire protection from the outside world. Mm. And so that's why what you eat and what you drink has such a profound potential to change your human biology is because there is almost no barrier between the two. And the importance of that barrier is paramount. And so if that barrier starts to break apart and you start to get leak across that membrane and you get unregulated movement of material from the outside world into your body, all hell breaks loose in the immune system. But the body seems to know that this is its vulnerability because it has placed some 70% of the entire immune system right behind that cellophane layer of gut lining. That structure is there to really be the kind of first line of defense against breach in that gut lining. So when breach occurs, which, again, I think is happening every couple seconds in our bodies these days with our chemical food chain, but with that constant opening of that membrane, you've got this constant opportunity for acute inflammatory reaction after acute inflammatory reaction after acute inflammatory reaction from your immune system. And as that starts to, to happen day in and day out, minute to minute, you can pretty quickly suck up your total body antioxidant reservoir. Mm-hmm. And that's where you start to have a direct effect, I think, on redox signaling because once you soak up all of that um, reservoir, your own immune response, these acute inflammatory reactions that are dumping acidic material into the body and not getting cleaned up by the antioxidant reservoir is now acidifying the body. 
And I mentioned that uh, the redox signaling is all about negative and positive charged molecules mm -hmm. being able to communicate. Mm -hmm. Well, acid is inherently positively charged. And so as your body shifts in pH, whether that may not be the bloodstream shifting yet, but even if it's just a little pocket of tissue in your breast or in the colon or in the prostate starts to go acidic, can't get enough oxygen to it, there's maybe a little infection going on, maybe lots of different contributing factors, lots of injuries happening at them from chemicals in your food chain, et cetera. It starts to go acidic and suddenly you can't get a redox signal to clearly go through that acidic environment and you start to lose that cell-cell communication, that intracellular communication, and you start to accumulate injury. And that's where you may someday down the line develop cancer, et cetera. That's was kind of our understanding of, well, there's gut health, and then gut health seems to be now, in every single journal you pick up, the root of everything. And so everything says that all begins in the gut. Neurologic disease begins in the gut. Cardiovascular disease begins in the gut. You know, autoimmune disease begins in the gut. You, know, you can go all the way down the whole list of peer-reviewed journal articles all over the world, and you find out, wow, what is this relationship? And so you're really asking to that. And as it turns out, that was our discovery in 2012, um, was a family of molecules that are being, we found them in soil, uh, soil science papers, we started seeing these molecules and soon realized they were being made by bacteria. And what I recognized in 2012 was they had the potential to be redox molecules, even though they had this huge carbon backbone, which is very atypical of what we think of as a redox molecule, usually an oxygen-based compound with redox from the mitochondria, this huge carbon backbone, and then all of these oxygen-hydrogen binding sites off of one end of that backbone suddenly realized, wow, that thing could function as an exchange tool or for electrons or a redox signaling carrier. And the profound message was that it's sitting there in soil, and soil is the opposite of the inside of the cell in regard to its control, right? So the, the soil pH may change day to day. Some animal comes along, pees there, or sun shines, and a plant falls there and starts to, to decompose. The pH is changing constantly. The osmolality, it suddenly rains. There's tons of water. There's just no control of that environment. And the sudden realization in 2012 was, of course, the bacteria lacking mitochondria are going to have to make their own redox signaling environment. And of course, it would have to have some huge carbon backbone on it to keep it stable when it's outside of the, the protected cellular environment. Mm. And so that was our sudden theory that we developed in 2012. And we started extracting those carbon molecules from ancient soil where we could get really rich varieties of these molecules from soils that are 60 million years old when we had topsoil that was 25 feet deep on the planet. And so we had a much bigger ecosystem to tap into in the fossil layer of soil than we could get from our modern day topsoils. And so by going back in the fossil record, we were starting to extract these carbon molecules, putting them into liquid form, getting them back into a redox state. When they come out of the ground, they're totally inert. They don't do any communication stuff whatsoever. But once we get them into our labs at Virginia and we start to balance some of that pH stuff and start to shift that oxygen hydrogen binding and everything else, that's when we start to get the magic to happen with this communication effect. And it's been so much more effective than we ever dreamed because human biology has never been understood in the context of bacteria. Hmm. Amazingly, we've always studied every single cellular biochemical event that we have thought to understand about human cells has been done in a sterile petri dish and so we've literally 
suddenly realize we have no idea how cells are going to behave when they have a communication network of the bacteria around them. Amazingly and not amazingly, because if you look at it, I mean, that's at least that's my understanding of how almost all science is done is it's reductive. And so you're trying to isolate this thing so that you can the theory, the thought process is like let's isolate this away from everything else that way we'll definitely understand what just this thing does but in reality what we've you know what we're finding out you know sort of all the time and what maybe common sense has told us for longer than that is that in none of these things react the same or behave the same in a vacuum as they do in nature or in us or or what have you that's right yeah. That's right. Exactly right. And so what we see is uh, over and over again, we've cured cancer in the laboratory millions of times. I mean, mm-hmm. so many labs around the world have found cure for cancer in, in a Petri dish. But as soon as you try to put that into an organism like a mouse with, and, with a cancer model or a human, the outcome is completely different and, and never has the same effect. And the reason is, is because we have discounted this huge reality of communication across systems and its importance. And so uh, while we can affect a single cell with some therapy, to get that to actually take effect in the complexity of 70 trillion human cells that are all in communication all the time, it just is a totally different ballpark. And now what we're seeing with Restore is that now that we've got all of this evidence from the last five years that we totally underestimated the role of communication from the bacteria in every element of human life. And so the bacteria are increasingly recognized to not just be in the gut. There's some recent studies, 2014 and before, uh, that showed that the there are DNA of bacteria that we can find in the tissue of breast cancer cells and in the uh, in the healthy uh, breast of the same woman. So you take a biopsy of a woman's breast cancer, and then you go over to the healthy breast on the other side and biopsy that. And what you find is two different types of bacteria in those two tissues. Oh, in the same individual? Same woman. Okay. Same woman. And so we've now been able to show that a sphingomonas uh, bacterial species is supposed to be present in healthy breast tissue. And as soon as that switches to an acidic environment, it, it has to call in a different bacteria. So the breast will start to pull in a bacteria that's a methylobacterium. And so that that family of bacteria do better in an acidic environment and can deal with kind of the adversity of a, a, of a tissue in the breast that's now starting to move towards chronic inflammation, lacking cell-cell communication, starting to accumulate injury, starting to call in more and more acidity from the immune system, you know, all of this kind of buildup. And so you have to inherently call in a different bacteria. Well, in my training of 17 years in academic medicine, I was never told that there should be bacteria in, in a breast. Right. That's called cellulitis in my mind. Right, right, and right. So it's just totally brand new science to find out that we're supposed to have bacteria in our tissue all over our body is massive revelation. And our science of these carbon redox molecules coming from the bacteria is explaining a lot of how those bacteria are interacting with the human cells that they're taking care of. It literally looks like we have these little shepherd-like bacteria that are nursemating maybe thousands or tens of thousands or maybe millions of breast cells. A single bacteria may be responsible for taking care of that little population. And so a very fascinating reality of cell-cell communication not just being limited inside the cell. And so when I 
mentioned the mitochondria and that maybe they could cross these gap junctions with their information to a nearby cell. The important reality is those gap junctions and the tight junctions, which are the kind of Velcro-like structural proteins that hold cells together, these tight junctions and gap junctions are outside of the purview of that cell-cell communication. So there's no way that mitochondrial redox signaling could directly affect the extracellular matrix. And it looks like the extracellular matrix is where the infrastructure for communication happens as far as the fiber optic cables and all the structural support so that one cell can have some self-identity and talk to another one. It makes total sense that the bacteria with these carbon redox, you know, backbone molecules are able to put out information or maintain a communication network that can help with the extracellular matrix and where the mitochondria are helping with the inside of the cell. And that's precisely what's borne out of our science over the last five years is we've been able to show that as soon as you put these uh, carbon molecules back into play in a cellular environment, your body starts making more extracellular matrix. We've never seen extracellular matrix produced in a Petri dish by kidney cells, for example. And now we can take these kidney tubule cells, and as soon as we put bacterial communication network, they're suddenly building three-dimensional structure in a Petri dish. And they're able to say, hey, I'm over here, I'm over here. They plump up. It's a very phenomenal thing to witness under a microscope to see bacterial information helping a human cell population that's been isolated suddenly start to understand itself and get some orientation because it's got this huge grounding force of all of this soil-based information. And when I say soil, I'm talking about your gut as much as any dirt on the ground. Your gut should look just like the organic soil of, of, of the earth around you in the sense that it should team with 30,000 species of bacteria and fungi and yeast and all these guys cooperating back and forth. And so this massive ecosystem should be in the gut as well as in the soil that you're growing your plants. Man, okay. Jeez, my head is just spinning with questions that I want to ask. <laughs> um, so as I feel like as soon as, as soon as someone hears, oh, there's this kind of bacteria that should be in uh, a female human's breast tissue – so that she won't have breast cancer, then that person is going to be like, all right, I'm going to consult with Dr. Google and find out like, where do I find that bacteria? And can I take it orally? Or can I put it on my breast as a cream? Or can I, you know, pay someone to inject it into my breast or something? And so there's, there's that one thought, and I'm going to cut right back to it in a second. But very in a related stance, you were talking about um, a, the acidic environment tends to be uh, full of cations or positively charged molecules. And the, I mean, you know, it, I mean, it's been decades. I mean, ever, ever since I've been around, you know, the picture that people have, there have been, you know, health minded people trying to reduce the amount of acid in one way or another that they're you know, sometimes they're trying to reduce the amount of acid they're taking into their through their diet, and and sometimes they understand that well, I can't just eat less acid to have less acid in my tissues. So my my point with that kind of ramble there is there's it's it's similar to the petri dish, you know, human tissue conversation that you were just having. 
it's it's one thing to to notice like oh there's this certain kind of bacteria or there's this certain kind of any kind of environment acidic or whatever and then it's another thing to promote that within the body um so precisely my, yeah so it's I, like those two things are actually we can answer in the same way i think so right. the the uh you know, tendency of the field, I'd say integrative medicine, holistic medicine, functional medicine, as well as just pure out Western medicine, allopathic medicine that I was trained in for 17 years. We all have the same mentality often, which is just, it doesn't mean we're stupid. It's just a natural thing of like, oh, well, this is the flaw. We just need to fix that. And so uh, we just need to take this acidic body and make it alkaline. So drink alkaline water or take this supplement with acai berries or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. You know, like you said, there's been a million variations on trying to balance pH in the body. But the reality is if you if you check the, the blood pH, it's always the same. Like the body is so good at buffering the bloodstream and keeping. And so what we're really talking about is you know, these little areas that might represent less than one thousandth of percent of your body start to accumulate acidity. And so by thinking, well, I could just take something to more alkalinize my body. Well, 99 percent of your body is pH balanced perfectly. Mm -hmm. And so we keep mistaking these little environments of disease or dysfunction as the whole body. Uh, when in reality, we see in the ICUs, I've treated the sickest people on the planet for sure, like end-stage AIDS patients, end-stage bone marrow cancer patients. You go down the list. I've seen every kind of extreme illness when I'm helping run ICUs in the years past. And it, what you see is even at the most extreme state of collapse of a human body, the pHs are still remarkably controlled. And so kidneys are so good at dealing with pH and dealing with acid base. Your bone is so good at buffering uh, the acidic environment around it and everything else. So your body's brilliant. It has this huge intelligence to it that really outstrips anything you could ever put on a grocery store shelf or a natural food store or a physician's office shelves to say, you know, this will do this to your body or this will do this to your body. If you just start dumping a bunch of baking soda, a bunch of bicarbonate into, into water and just drink a ton of it, uh, you'll probably get some GI distress and you'll absorb some of it, but your kidneys are just going to instantly almost just, yeah. just deal with that. Because if you're, your body's uh, going to start making acid. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you're right. going to start immediately pumping out a ton of acid to buffer that huge alkaline, uh, force that you just dumped in. Right. And of course the alkaline source will burn you. I mean, the worst burns are alkaline burns uh, and this, an acid burn is nowhere near as horrific as, a burn from an alkaline source. So um, we've definitely mistaken in our mind uh, the the role of pH. Mm. And part of it is because there's a confusion in the biochemical link, link language here where we say alkaline is the opposite of acid. Well, that's true in the language. But alkalinity is a different measure of property of any compound. Alkalinity is the the amount of acid c- that can be absorbed by any anything. Oh, more talking tr- about a buffer. It's it functions as a buffer, if you will, but it's not it's not uh, d- dependent on its pH. So, a good mm-hmm. example of this is something like apple cider vinegar. Acidic pH, high alkalinity, it can absorb more acid, and so the alkalinity of your body is more important than the 
acid alkaline balance. Hmm, okay, so I'm not familiar buffering, with this concept. Okay, it's interesting. The buffering capacity of your body is what I think is most critical. Yep. Your kidneys, your bones, all those guys are taking care of the pH acid alkaline balance. Absolutely. But if but if you have a ton of alkalinity or a ton of ability to absorb or exchange at any moment positive negative charge, then that buffering effect is helping the mitochondrial redox signaling environment really function, or in the case of these bacterial compounds that we've recently found, with the, the more buffering you have, the more neutrality that you can bring into this environment, it improves the rate and distance that that signal can travel. Hmm. It's very much like cell phones. And so uh, my cell phone has a computer in there with the ability to receive and transmit microwave signals. And it works all the time. I walk seven miles or nine miles away from the nearest cell phone tower and I suddenly can't place a call. I can't reach the internet. I can't update my own software on my platform. Mm -hmm. But my computer is not broken at all. The inside that cell phone is all of the machinery that existed seconds before. Mm -hmm. Instead, the cell phone is disconnected from this wireless, invisible connectivity and that's exactly what the redox system is functioning as is the wireless communication network of the body the wireless communication inside your cells made by the mitochondria and what we really are proving out every day now is the wireless communication outside your cells are dictated by the bacteria through these carbon-based carbon carrying redox molecule systems and so it's a really elegant picture here that as long as all of your cells are within cell phone tower reach they have all of the mechanisms for cell repair, and if they're too damaged to repair, they can call on a stem cell, and they go through apoptosis, which is programmed cell suicide. Stem cell replaces it. They get total regeneration. And so a cell with unfettered access to, to communication never gets disease. And so there's a very exciting reality that... Instead of, you know, you, you contrasted Restore with like the berry compounds and everything else. And that's a yeah. perfect example because the berries are told they're antioxidants mm -hmm. and they have high levels of vitamin C in them or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to be a very interesting receptor-based kind of environment where you're hitting receptors all over the body and you're trying to do something specific with 99.9% .9 of the supplements on the market, mm -hmm. they're trying to go in and, and micromanage some little part of human biology. Mm -hmm. In contrast, Restore tries to do nothing. It's a totally, <laughs> totally inactive compound, meaning that it's not going to tell your body to do anything. All it's going to do is move in and penetrate this extracellular environment and it is the wireless communication. So the only thing that's going to happen is one cell is going to suddenly be able to hear an adjacent cell. Mm -hmm. But the important thing about the way that we formulated it at Restore is we wanted to make absolutely sure we were doing nothing directly. We wanted all of the effect of this supplement to be indirect, that all it was doing. And that's that was a balancing act because if you look at all the other soil extracts on the market, Shilajit, humic acids, fulvic acids, all these compounds extracted from ancient soils, all of those go after intense mineral deposits. And so they're used as mineral supplements to get lots of mineral into the body. Um, fulvic acid is a real slippery one. It can get through membranes and start to move around the body better. But fulvic acid does not have this benign do-nothing effect. Fulvic acid is actually quite toxic on kidney cells when we put them on kidney cells and stuff like that. So 
they're too active. They're too, they're, they just are micro engineering one thing. Mm. And so we weren't happy with the restore until we proved out that there was doing nothing. It was so benign that we could actually not only see no toxicity in the renal tubule cells, which is kind of the gold standard of pharmaceutical testing for toxicity. And uh, not only was there no toxicity, we were actually making those renal tubule cells live 15 to 20% longer in culture, which hadn't happened since 1969. The culture environment in Petri dish was kind of really perfected back in the late 60s, and we really haven't advanced that. Suddenly, we added bacterial communication, and suddenly everything lived longer. That had not been seen in a very long time. And so the beauty of Restore is it's literally doing nothing. It's not an oxidant. It's not a reductant. It's both. And it's both balanced. And so all you want is this total perfect balance of redox signaling so that it's just sitting there kind of on a teeter-totter waiting for the signals from your mitochondria or other areas to send across information to the rest of the system. So is so first of all, there's, there's not one thing that, you're, that you've tr- like isolated and put into this supplement it's exactly it's i don't know how many millions of variants oh millions okay millions of variants yeah and so each species of bacteria and fungi make their own little subset of these carbon snowflakes and as you're aware snowflakes all look different right every single snowflake looks a little different than the previous one so we've come to call these guys yeah and so we've come to call these things carbon snowflakes because in the same vein as a snowflake falling from the sky each bacteria seems really good at making its own little subset of these and when we start to talk about communication there's an obvious language here and so you can start to imagine each of these little Variance, And when you start to look at 30,000 or 100,000 different species of bacteria, 5 million species of fungi, you start to realize that if each of them are making between 5 and 15 of these different variants, these molecules, in their digestive process, they're making these molecules. You suddenly multiply all that out and you've got millions and millions of these different snowflakes. And so your vocabulary is enormous on a communication level. You contrast that to mitochondria, there's only three species of mitochondria, and they only make 15 total variants of these redox molecules. Hmm. And so we are seeing so much more potency on human biology from the bacterial communication than we ever have with the mitochondrial. And so we're very excited because uh, there's a supplement on the market called ASEA that is the, the mitochondrial kind of redox signaling stuff extracted or perfected from salt and water. Okay. And so that compound we, we've used clinically and we've used it as a control in a lot of our experiments with Restore because it's the pure oxygen kind of redox signaling environment. Okay. And it takes weeks or months or years before you start to see bo- changes in your body uh, from that oxygen redox mitochondrial kind of thing when you start to take that. In contrast, in split seconds and minutes, you're seeing changes happen under the microscope and in human clinical use with that carbon redox system of the the bacteria. And I think a large reason for that is the stability of those molecules are much different. This huge carbon backbone means that the molecule never goes away. They've been around for 60 million years waiting for us to find their secret, and they're not going to disappear in a millionth of a second. Whereas that oxygen redox signaling of the mitochondria is going to be gone and gone and has to be reproduced constantly, constantly, constantly. And so we found a stable communication network that's way better at transiting these environments of your intestinal lining, for example. And so pH of your mouth might be 7.2, but just 8 inches south, 
in your stomach, you got a pH of 2.8, you know, so this radical shift in, in pH when you swallow something, if you're going to maintain that bacterial communication potential, it's going to have to have that carbon backbone that's going to keep it stable through all of these different environments. Wow. So here's, okay, here's where I'm going to try to go next. And maybe this is too broad of a conversation, but so, you know, we mentioned big farming uh, and there's, there's a, a concept that I'm not an expert in, but familiar with that talks about uh, a lot of the modern agriculture that we that we employ in first world countries, especially in the United States, I'm the most familiar with, uh, you know, corn and soy and wheat and some of these, you know, classic, you know, where there's just square miles and miles of, of these things, right? And um, I believe I'm going to say this right. All of those plants are annuals. They're yes. they're not they're not what's called a perennial, which means that it, it can uh, sort of re um, bud every year and grow a little bit bigger and and keep That's living right. year after year after year, even even through snows and stuff. Sometimes depending on the where you know the climate and all those. So they're annuals. So we have to keep planting them every year, and we plant them in the spring and then we grow them and then and we've gotten really good at growing them really big with different chemicals and different kinds of processes and blah, blah, blah. But, but just for right now, we'll just say we grow them and then we harvest them in the fall essentially. Um, and then, uh, and then we eat part of them. But so then as far as the whole sort of what that does to the planet. My understanding, and I'm, I'm going to say the planet, but, you know, stay with me here because we're still talking about individual health, but, um, but I, think, I think the planet health and the individual health have quite a bit to do with each other. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So, the, so what we're doing to the planet is um, not only are we stripping away those minerals that are in the topsoil, uh, and you had mentioned something about however many millions of years ago, the topsoil was 25 feet deep. And now I think it's like a foot deep or something like that. Yeah. I'm not even positive on that, yeah. but, um, but there, so we're stripping away all the minerals. We've known that we've been doing that for decades, which is why they came out with NPK fertilizers back in like the forties. I think if I think I'm accurate yeah. with that. Um, yeah. so those, those give like some of the, the main nutrients that we need to make really big corn, but not necessarily all the nutrients that we need to get from eating the corn. That's right. Um, so, so there's just a super, super nutrient depleted topsoil that we continue to plant these, you know, uh, a- annuals in over and over and over. And then in the meantime, we're, there aren't any perennials that are living there, at least there anymore. That's right. And the perennials actually, uh, of course, you know, plants are just like humans and, and animals, and there's just like a, so much individual variation. But, but generally speaking, perennials send roots way deeper than annuals because because yeah. they have to survive year after year after year after year, and so they they have these roots that just tap way down feet, tens of feet, 20, 25, 
you know, maybe more feet down, some of them. And they can tap into mineral deposits that there's just absolutely no way that corn can do or soy can do or something like that. And so we don't have time to do a whole like agriculture revolution, hunter gatherer conversation exactly, but I'm sort of, I'm sort of going there. I'm skirting around that a little bit and I'm, well, let's bring that right back to the bacteria. So, okay. um, yeah, we've got the bacterial communication, and I think we've convinced your listeners that, or at least confused them, <laughs> that there's this huge amount of information from the bacterial environment, from the micro environment of bacteria and fungi and all this, yes. that is maintaining human health at the cellular level. And we're starting to increasingly understand those exact relationships and uh, if you want to go to the Zach Bush MD website, there's a bunch of science on there as to kind of some peer-reviewed journal articles and other stuff that we've published around, you know, what we're discovering every year. So there's that connection. But now you point to the big farming and dating back, I think, exactly to the 1940s at the end of World War II, we started to make these big changes in farming where we went to kind of a chemical-based fertilizer, the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium is the MPK uh, combination you talked about. And so at that moment, we kind of lost respect for thousands of years of human understanding of farming and soil maintenance and soil management. We departed from that and said, well, if we just spray it with enough petroleum-based chemicals, we can get green plants. And indeed, we did get green plants, so much so that we turned the whole Midwest into what would become the breadbasket of the world by the 1960s, and we were growing more wheat, soy, corn than any other country ever on record. And the way we did that through what was called the Green Revolution was spraying a ton of these basic nutrients uh, into the soil, and it led to this boom of quick growth. And ironically, when a plant is under nutrient available, it gets stressed, and when it's stressed, it starts putting out more fruit. And so we, it looked perfect. It looked like, well, look, we have all these green plants and they're fruiting like crazy. But the hidden disaster sitting there that would start to build over the next 30 years is that by not respecting the nutrients in the soil and, like you say, planting monocrops of these annuals across the whole Midwest, we inherently dumbed down our soil. We lost nutrient source but probably more devastatingly as soon as we started to weaken the plant then all of the the bugs the viruses the weeds they all started moving in on these weakened crops and so then we had to start spraying with the chemical herbicides and pesticides and that's kind of the 1960s 70s by the time we really were turning up the heat on that warfare against the the weeds and and bugs And 1976 was the debut of the most famous of these, this active ingredient called glyphosate, which is Roundup. So patented and used in Roundup in 1976, it was a weed killer, very potent, had to be kept away from our crops because it would kill the corn or the soybean or whatever it touched. It was not actually patented as a weed killer. It was patented as an antibiotic. And since then, it's been patented as an antiparasite, antifungal. It kills any bug it touches. It also kills almost any plant it touches. And the way it does that is by blocking an enzyme pathway in bacteria and plants that make essential amino acids or protein building blocks and makes uh, all of the medicinal qualities of the food that we we get. 
we should have all these things called alkaloids in our food that are anti-cancer, there's anti-malarials, there's anti-hypertensives, there's antidepressants. All of these things should exist in our food. But we inherently added a chemical into our food chain that was blocking the ability of bacteria and plants to make the medicines of our food and to make the essential building blocks for the protein structures or the macronutrients that would end up in those plants. And so we literally started to grow food that was devoid of nutrient quality. Furthermore, it w we were as humans now consuming food that couldn't deliver the essential things we needed. We're talking about um, you know cellular structure here. For a moment, let's go even tinier and talk about proteins rather than cells. Proteins are the building blocks. You can imagine Legos that build the human body. So there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of different proteins in the body. And these guys are the building blocks for big structures within the body, including things like the gap junctions and tight junctions and things we talked about, as well as the inside of the cell, the actin filaments that help move stuff around the cells and all these things. Those proteins are made up of only 26 amino acids. Just like the alphabet in, in the English language here, we've got 26 letters that can build hundreds of thousands of different words. And in the same way, the amino acids, 26 of them, can build hundreds of thousands of different proteins. There's eight of those that are considered essential amino acids that we have to get from our diet because we can't manufacture them. We're good to go on a good 18 of those where we can manufacture these amino acids all day long from just about anything. But there is these eight essentials. And these eight essentials are, are largely, at least half of those, are affected by this enzyme pathway that's made by glyphosate or Roundup. And so we are blocking half of the essential amino acids in our food chain by adding this chemical in. That was not so big of a problem until we started actually spraying the crops themselves. Because when you're spot spraying and you're not hitting the soil the food's growing in, it's not that big of a deal. But in 1992, we started spraying wheat with glyphosate. And we did that because it was the only crop that needs to be killed before it can be harvested, right? Mm. And so the, the wheat has to grow to maturity, go to seed, dry out completely in death, and then it can be cut, harvested, packaged, and, and processed into something like flour that would make anything else. In contrast to that, the corn and the soybean, if you touch it with Roundup, you get a dead plant and you have no crop until 1996 and that's when of course Monsanto became the first big successful company to roll out a genetically modified seed for corn and soybean that was resistant to that roundup effect meaning you could spray the plant directly suddenly now we were spraying soils of miles and miles and miles and miles like really a full one-third if not six you know closing in on 40 to 50% of our country sprayed now with this chemical by the 2010 kind of era. And so this huge shift of just spot spraying with this glyphosate chemical to broadcasting over much of our nation was a huge, massive change. We've been doubling the total global use of that chemical every six years since the 1970s. And so currently, as of 2014, 15, we're using somewhere around 2 billion kilograms of glyphosate worldwide. That's over 5 billion pounds or close to 5 billion pounds. My math may be a little off there. But uh, near 5 billion pounds of this chemical are dumped into the soils of the earth. 
And uh, now, unfortunately, most of that soil is actually the soil that we're growing our food in. And so now we're having a huge impact on the nutrient quality of our food. And simultaneously, we are killing bacteria everywhere. This is the number one antibiotic worldwide. We kill more bacteria with Roundup than anything else on the planet. Physicians are highly guilty of way over-prescribing antibiotics, but it pales in comparison to what we're doing with Roundup. Mm. And so now I'm telling you that we've developed a food chain that is annihilating bacteria worldwide as well as anything that would show up in the air that you breathe or the foods you eat or the ferments you prepare. And so we are literally subtracting away the bacterial ecosystem so rapidly over the last 20 years. And of course, that's correlated perfectly with a massive explosion of human disease. Autism, one in 5,000 to one in 40 in just 30 years. Insane amount of growth. Cancer, one in two males in the United States now has cancer before they die. These insane statistics. Type 2 diabetes, never even heard of kids with type 2 diabetes in the 1960s. Now you've got you know kids all over the place with not only pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes, but they have polycystic ovarian syndrome and all these bizarre metabolic complications by such a young age. And it's correlated perfectly with our loss of bacteria and therefore the consequential loss of their communication system in our body. That's a big problem. <laughs> it's a huge problem. So when people talk about uh, gluten sensitivity... Um, what's your stance on your understanding of the science and stuff like that about gluten sensitivity, gluten's a protein. Uh, when we say sensitivity, there's an immune reaction to this protein theoretically, uh, and it can lead to autoimmunity and things like this. So with all of that said, um, there's, there's a thought process that, saying that, well, it's, it's not actually gluten sensitivity. It's, it's more like glyphosate poisoning. And, you know, and, and I, I have a number of patients that are like, well, I go to Italy and I can still eat the pasta, you know, and there's conversations like that. They're um, right. And so right. I, I'm curious about, about that. Yeah. So let's go into that. So, um, again, uh, again, on our website, you can check it out or the restore for life website, either of those will find it, but we published a, the first paper uh, in the peer-reviewed journal articles uh, showing that there's a, a huge synergy between uh, gluten effect on the tight junctions and this leaky membrane of the gut um, and glyphosate. So both of those act through a very similar pathway to do the damage to the gut lining to expose our immune system to the outside world. And so we were able to show that uh, in the labs and, and across human membranes and membranes of mice and other rodents as well. So uh, we've shown in multiple species that there's this additive effect of the gluten and the glyphosate damaging that tight junction, which then, of course, overwhelms the immune system. And so number one is gluten and glyphosate work through a similar pathway. But we're about to publish another paper that really teases out how is it that there's synergy. And this story is pretty amazing because the breakdown product of gluten that causes tight junction damage and permeability of your gut lining and all of the symptoms that you would kind of put with gluten sensitivity, brain fog, fatigue, achiness, all these things, all of that is downstream effects of the uh, breakdown product of the gluten, which is called gliadin. 
Gluten is a large protein that's cleaved down to about 13 little pieces, and one of those is gliadin. And gliadin binds to, to a receptor called CXCR3, and that can then trigger zonulin, which weakens the tight junctions. So that was a lot of big words that you never heard of and maybe not useful to you. But what I'm trying to show you is that there's this pathway where gluten will break down into gliadin. Gliadin will touch the cell membrane and make it sensitive or perhaps reactive to it but it's all reliant on the CXCR3 receptor being present on the surface of your intestines. Hmm, because I, I thought that you could... I, I'm familiar with the test uh, that I do with my clients, actually, sometimes. I didn't even realize that gliadin was a, a part of gluten. I thought it was another whole protein. But So you're saying it's a breakdown piece of gluten. And, it's a piece of gluten. And I believe there's alpha gliadin and gamma gliadin. Yep. And so there's a bunch of different ones. And Those are all cleavage elements of, of gluten. And there's gluteomorphin. <laughs> and there's, so there's like all these different things that I believe the immune system can react it can be reactive to any one part of those things. Is that right? Or yeah, the, the immune reactivity happens after it leaks into the the gut and right. so or across the gut. And so step one is create the leak. And the way gliadin does that is binding to the CXCR3 oh, receptor. Got it. Okay. And so that CXCR3 receptor, what we've shown, is upregulated as soon as glyphosate touches the gut. And so we probably, you know, it was rare event to see somebody with gliadin or gluten sensitivity before 1992. But in 92, when we start spraying the wheat with the glyphosate, now we're introducing a chemical that upregulates the receptor by which gliadin will do its damage. And so that paper coming out is going to be really the first time that we've had in the peer-reviewed journal publication showing the exact mechanism by which glyphosate is causing this gluten sensitivity effect. And did I, you're saying it fast. I don't know if I got it right. CXCR3. Uh, you got it. Okay. And is that, where is that? Is that on, is that part of on the, the, on the It's a, No, it's on the surface of the intestinal lining. In a terocyte. Uh, it's on the endothelial, uh, the uh, epithelial lining of the gut. And so that cellophane-like layer that constitutes this two tennis court surface area that I was describing earlier, that whole surface, all of those cells are able to express CXCR3 on their surface. And when that binds gliadin, then it sends zonulin into process, which will weaken the tight junction and open up the gut membrane. Okay. And somehow all of these carbon backbone redox signaling structures that you've dug up from 7 million year old topsoil is able to downregulate the CXCR3 receptor or is it or is it more having to do with it interacts with the glyphosate uh, so that right. it can't upregulate it or how does how is that working all of the above. So okay. it, it, what we've shown is that these the bacterial communication network upregulates uh, some enzymes, specifically one called DPP4. And the DPP4... Yeah, that, that's in, you can get that enzyme and just take that enzyme, I think, to yep. like, oh, I'm going to go out and have a beer with my buddies, so I'm going to take some DPP4 or whatever. Yeah. Isn't that kind of how it's marketed? Yeah, it is. 
And DPP-4 is, is an enzyme that then breaks down zonulin. So even though the gluten may be binding the, the receptors, when they try to go make zonulin, the zonulin will be chewed up very quickly. Okay. Um, there's a lot of bacteria that once you start taking the bacterial communication of Restore, you see a huge increase in the biome. So more diversity, a shift to the bacteroides instead of the firmicutes. You get all these beneficial shifts in the, in the bacterial flora. And so we think that at least one of the mechanisms of, of Restore, which is probably actually representing millions of little changes, but one of the main mechanisms is by getting the right bacteria into the gut, you can actually detox very effectively what's coming in the mouth. There's a very specific bacterial uh, family that digests glyphosate or Roundup very effectively. Mm. And so I think we're getting all these indirect effects of Restore. So like I said, Restore doesn't do anything directly. It's just a communication network. But when it brings in, through that support of the communication, a huge shift in the biome where you get diversification and increase in number, you just improve detox. You can start to chew up some of these toxins before they ever hit the gut lining. And then the communication network is encouraging the gut line to hurry up and make a bunch of healthy enzymes like DPP-4 and many others to chew up any downstream products that might be happening from the toxins. So it's at more than one level, really. Many, many levels. Okay. And then once you get past the gut lining, we've shown that Restore immediately has a massive increase in glutathione, which is the main antioxidant really? in your body. And so you get an eight, 800 to a 10,000 know, jump in, in glutathione depending on the tissue. And so you get this huge upregulation of glutathione. And again, it's, there's no glutathione in Restore. Can it's you not measure that? Be- Can you measure that in the serum? Or are we not talking serum glutathione? We're talking... Like yeah, we're talking do... about glutathione in the in the cells themselves. And yeah. is that reflected in the serum or no? Yeah, comment? it'll be reflected there. Okay. Yeah, it'll be reflected there, but it's going to be a reflection and not the the whole. Right. You'll see the highest levels inside the cells because glut- that's where glutathione is made. Some of that will then be transported out into the bloodstream, but the vast majority is really functioning. The bloodstream doesn't but need s- much in the way of antioxidants. The, I, I'm asking for uh, a selfish reason now as a clinician because uh i I don't have a a lab here where i can measure like biopsy and measure intracellular levels of my patient's glutathione so but i can send off for a serum test so so if the serum test goes if the glutathione in the serum goes up it's not an exact measurement of intracellular glutathione but it's a pretty in your in your opinion, it's a pretty I'd say it's going, to be, it's going to be a very rough marker. Very the, reason, rough. Okay. the reason is, is you're in a different compartment there. It's kind of like saying, well, I've got a thermostat in my living room, so I know exactly what temperature is in the garage. Okay. No, you have no idea what temperature is in the garage. And so the problem with the serum as far as being a marker for what's going on, glutathione as an antioxidant does 99% of its function not in the bloodstream. In the cell. It should, it should be inside the cells where it's right. doing its work. And so um, what I would say is don't bother checking glutathione levels. Instead, check CRP or these inflammation markers. Um, I use total IgG and total IgA a lot to kind of get a sense of what's going on with total body glutathione and everything else. But then it goes even a level deeper. So now we've shown you that the, the redox signaling environment of the carbon redox of the bacteria of Restore goes in, supports the membrane, and I don't even know if we've said on this one, I don't think we mentioned, but when, when we've got that in play, we can show that we can introduce 20,000 times the amount of glyphosate or Roundup that you would see in your diet, and you continue to do perfect support to that gut membrane. And so it's a very powerful 
support system to this extracellular matrix. We've shown that within seconds of it touching membranes, you get an increase in the protein synthesis of these tight junctions and extracellular matrix. So very powerful on the front end for just supporting the natural protective qualities of your body. Step two, it upregulates the glutathione within the immune system and cells within the gut lining. And so you get this huge support system of antioxidant. Step three, then, is within, we did this human study where you take somebody who's never seen Restore, you check their urine for CD133, which is a marker for total body stem cell activity. You give them one teaspoon of Restore. And when two hours later, you have them pee in a cup again, and what you find is a 20 to 30% increase in CD133. So you've increased stem cells body-wide with a single use of a carbon redox signaling molecule. It doesn't have any stem cells in it. It doesn't have any stem cell signaling stuff in it. It has just the communication of the extracellular matrix there, and the body is sending signal and calling in those stem cells, and that message is just not being heard suddenly you give back the wireless network and the body is calling in stem cells, upregulating glutathione and antioxidant reservoirs. It's doing the whole kit and caboodle. What you're going to find out with most of your patients is you never have to draw a blood test to see if it's working. They are reporting to you within days, I haven't felt this well in this area or this area or this area in decades. And so they're seeing you know, decades of the aging process reverse almost overnight uh, because you're putting back into play this redox signaling environment that's upregulating all of the natural defense and repair mechanisms of the body. I mean, in on one level, this makes total sense to me because I my my background is I'm a chiropractor, and that's like the old school like way way of talking about chiropractic is we're just trying to honor the body's innate intelligence. That's what chiropractors, you know, that's the label that chiropractors use a lot is innate intelligence. It's just talking about, look, our bodies have had this wisdom and we continue to grow and make babies and we grow up and we, you know, generally are healthy, although maybe less so when we're sprayed with glyphosate and all those things. Right. But, but we keep, we keep living and it's amazing. And, and, uh, to me, this is restore is just a, a really sophisticated, approach in, in in one way it's more simple but in one way it's more sophisticated because it's it's getting rid of that reductive quality uh that we were talking about earlier and so i everything you're saying is is amazing to me i mean this is this is really great stuff so i really appreciate it you're spot on i mean this innate intelligence is is really really strong and in fact we're launching in my clinic uh uh, a, something called Summit Series, where we're doing web-based interaction with hundreds of patients at a time now, um, So that, but it's called intrinsic health. And, and so we have all of the information in our bodies. It just needs to get across space and time. And that's spiritual information. That's, you know, in, intuition. It's not just raw science knowledge. It's not biochemistry information. It's consciousness. It's the human experience of life itself. Life is so much bigger than all of this mechanical biology that we're talking about. Mechanical biology accounts for 0.001% of, of the atom. 99.999% of the material that we're made of, this atomic structure, is vacuum space. And so we are vastly more empty than we are solid. Mm-hmm. 99.99% of our bodies is vacuum. 
And that vacuum is not empty. It's full of electromagnetic field and vibration and all this energy. That energy is really what life is. Biology can support or manifest the, the uh, appearance of what that energy is, is going to do, but it's never, being, it's never dictating to the energy. And that's where you know, this inherent innate intelligence that you're talking about is coming out of that physics realm and communicating to the biology all the time. And we've got it completely reversed in allopathic medicine where we keep trying to use the biology to shift this huge energetic field of the human being. And in so doing, we've never gotten it right. Every single drug that's ever been on the market has innumerable side effects. And if you get a side effect, it's often worse than the actual condition you were trying to treat. And so uh, we've just missed the boat completely with allopathic medicine because we keep thinking way too simply about this. And so when you talk about an innate intelligence, I would encourage all of you who are listening to start to think about your own life. What are you not listening to? You're spending a ton of time listening to outside information, but what is the opportunity to start listening inside yourself? Because in reality, the bacteria in your body and the human cells in your body have this innate intelligence, and they're, they're trying to coordinate health all the time. And this is where I think prayer and meditation are so powerful, whether it's a meditation practice or a yoga practice or uh, qigong or tai chi or just hiking in the mountains or whatever you do to get into that space of silence, that is the beginning of health. Your body is trying to speak health into your space every day. And if you're filling it too much with chat sessions online and text messaging and email messaging and phone calls to everybody you work with and coordinating church activities on the weekend, and if you're so packed that you can't have any silence, your body's going to suffer and you're going to start aging faster because you're de disconnected from that innate inherent intelligence. That's awesome, man. Hey, so quick question. I, I, we'll try to wrap it up here. Uh, so just a couple like smaller questions. The So as you said, restore doesn't do anything like specifically, right? And, but it, it supports normal biology. Correct me if I'm if I'm wrong on this one, but it it's essentially creating it's helping to create an environment where uh, instead of taking a probiotic, for example, where and, and I would try to uh, give some healthy bacteria, this is restore could create a an environment where our body and the other bacteria that are in the lumen of the gut and all of that will promote more a more a greater variety of of these healthy bacteria is that correct yeah yeah and and so i guess so i started i started hearing about this and you know looking into uh restore a little bit and i i started getting uh sort of um i would like every time I like walk outside and especially if I take a trip to like another city or another state, um, especially if I'm going to go swimming in a lake or something, I'm always like, that's when I take my dose of restore. Cause I'm like, uh, I don't know what bacteria is in this lake, but 
if there's any like good bacteria in here, I want to like help promote yeah. the idea, you know? So, um, that's a great, that's a great technique. That's exactly right. So I guess that's what I'm, a, yeah. So I'm wondering like, where does the bacteria come from? You know, if you're much of it is coming from the air you breathe, it turns out. Okay. And that's why it's so exciting to get out into these different environments. Like you're talking about, it's why everybody feels different and better at the end of a vacation where they leave the house, they go to the beach or they go to the lake or they go to the mountains or they go to the waterfall they feel better, A, because they stress less, perhaps, for a few days. Um, but I think it's less about that, because I think oftentimes there's different kinds of stress when you're trying to travel and do vacation. But you can often feel better biologically at the end of a vacation because you changed the information in your body by breathing different air. And so uh, the bacterial and fungal elements within the air are innumerable, you know, millions and millions of species out there. And so if you're living in a drywall box called a house and you get in an air-conditioned car in your garage and you drive to air-conditioned office and then you reverse that direction to get home and then you eat mostly pre-prepared food in the home or at a restaurant, you're never touching anything. You're not touching any ecosystem of interest whatsoever. And that's why your health is really suffering. And so you're exactly right about the function of restore here, getting the bacteria back into the system. is It's acting as the compost of the garden, but now you got to get the bacteria in there. And so it's bringing a rich amount of nutrient in there. It's bringing rich communication network potential, but you got to get the exposure to these diverse populations of bacteria. So grow a plant in the backyard so that you go have to go out and weed. Grow some tomatoes, grow some basil, grow some peppers, grow something in your backyard. Or if you don't have a backyard, Grow them in containers in the window of your living room or whatever it is. Get some plants growing in your environment so the soil-borne organisms are contributing to the ecosystem that you breathe every day. Then, you know, get, an, get a pet if you can't get outside enough. Uh, the, you know, now you have a dog. You've got to go walk that twice a day. Well, at least you're out twice a day now. And the dog is digging around in the dirt all day long. And every time it licks your face, is going to contribute healthy bacteria back into your space. Got it. So another question on a different a tangent. Um, when you read the back of the Restore label, there's some interesting components in there. And one of them that caught my eye the first time that I read it was antimony. And I thought right away, wait a second, isn't this something that we're generally trying to get out of the body? Uh, right. So um, what, what can you say to that? So the, the minerals there that you see in, in there is simply just soil mineral. And so you're going to see the same mix of soil minerals in, in Restore that you would see on the skin of a sweet potato or a beet or a turnip. Anything that's grown in the soil is going to exhibit that same mineral spectrum. Well, except and, for Restore is from other soil. I mean, you're not just like, this isn't all from uh, Dr. Zach's backyard soil right like you're no fortunately it's not you, <laughs> I mean, you know my backyard is you know a good example of it so i live in rural virginia i've got a great garden I've, i love it but it's i only have like four inches of decent topsoil okay and so uh, you look back 50 million years ago before there was ever such a thing as a, a human let alone a chemical farming industry there was an intelligence in that soil that was much deeper and the the ratios that you're seeing in these trace elements, first of all, they're tiny. You're down like less than a part per million uh, for most of these elements. And so 
your these trace trace elements. And if you went and got shilajit or humic acid or one of these mineral supplements off the shelf, you're looking at thousands of times higher concentrations of everything that you would see in Restore. And so it's not a mineral supplement. It's really, you know, targeting these carbon redox potential molecules as its active ingredient. Those other ones just happen to be innocent bystanders within the soil there that are integrated into the carbon molecule matrix. Hmm, interesting. So, but I'm not necessarily going to find that those same minerals in you should in a sweet potato that I grow in my in my topsoil. That's that's. Oh like, yeah, you could. Yeah, oh. and that might be exactly the same ratio because they, you know, Borrelia might be slightly different and all that, but. Uh, the the whole periodic chart is is in our soils. Yeah, that's what Earth is made of is the whole periodic chart. Okay. And so you can find Einsteinium and Americonium and all the bizarre radioactive material that you see on the periodic chart down at the very bottom of the chart. There, all these very heavy isotopes. That's that's all sitting there. <laughs> it's all down in the mineral content of our Earth. And so you know, it sounds you know scary when you say read anything. Uh, that, you know, in concentration can cause a problem. But in reality, this is just part of our natural food chain. Okay. I mean, I, I can kind of buy that. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious, and maybe this is neither here nor there, but why? So you're saying, like, if somebody gets a Shilajit product, uh, there's going to be a bunch of maybe antimony or maybe something else. For sure. Uh, like, if you'd have to bring it to a lab to find that out, though. Why, why aren't they saying that that's in there or like maybe it's even on whatever stuff I just bought from the grocery store. Maybe it's on some of that, you know, but like nobody's putting that on the label. Why, why are you bothering to put it on the label? Well, we were told by the, uh, you have an older bottle cause actually our new labels don't say it at all. Oh, and the reason, oh. and so the, the, the labels that are now on restore just say, you know, the terahydrate carbon redox, uh, aqueous humic substance is the only ingredient in it. We were told by the FDA when I, I started out, so I was a cancer researcher historically and used to yeah. just deal directly with the FDA. So I was in the same mindset when I discovered Restore. I called up the FDA and said, I've got this thing. I'm going to make it a dietary supplement, um, and these are the regulations I'm following and all that. And so I just went down the pharmaceutical route. And so I just went down the route of, you know, full disclosure, anything I could find by mass spectrometry down to a billionth of a part I was going to report. Yep, and, they yep. said, and, they, and they said, OK, that sounds good. That, that was their dietary supplement regulatory people we were talking to. Well, you fast forward a few years and then we start asking the same questions. You are like, well, why isn't this stuff on anybody else's label? Yeah, yeah. And, and so we went to our lawyers for a year. And finally, they came back and said, well, we just realized what you're reporting. And this is so far below the threshold of, of anybody's radar screen of what you're reporting that that's why your supplement looks different than anybody else's. So just go back to the thresholds that the FDA requires, which right. is up around 10 parts per million, and suddenly the whole label disappears. Yep. And so uh, we were just we were over-reporting these, these trace, yeah. trace minerals that, that were in the periodic chart there. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. And... Uh... You know, I <laughs> I kind of want to say thanks for your honesty and your earnestness. You know, I mean, it's, it's it, in some ways it's in some ways it's good that we don't have that we don't have that information as as general consumers because then you could just start micromanaging like everything. But well, the, but then yeah. in some ways it causes confusion in the end yeah. is what we right. found out is right. 
our our effort towards transparency was simply causing massive confusion in the consumer. Makes we sense. did the gold standard, and we've done it. You know, we do this actually on a daily basis. We grow renal tubule cells in our lab, and we check every batch that comes out of our our manufacturing plant for safety. And so we're growing renal tubule cells, and we are drenching these things. So we're we, you can grow renal tubule cells in a hundred percent restore. Mm-hmm. That's never been seen with another supplement. You you go to water, for example, water starts to kill renal tubule cells at about 20% concentrations. So the safety of this stuff is unprecedented. Okay. And so we know that we're extending life of the most sensitive cells in the body by exposing them to restore. And so we, we are convinced that the, at the biochemical and cellular environments, and now we've got five years of human data since then, there is no toxicity to these trace minerals that, that are sitting in there. And like got I it. said, you're getting the same stuff on your potatoes and your, anything that's grown in the soil is going to have a similar mix. Got it. It's super great to know that this is a really safe product as well as effective. So that's really good information. With that in mind, uh, some I, I'm just going to say this personally, and uh, you know, some people, you know, my listeners will know, like I'm I'm quite a sharer of <laughs> of details sometimes. But I will say, when I started taking this, within I don't remember if it was like a day or maybe three days, but within a few days, I was having awesome bowel movements, and I was already having pretty healthy bowel movements. But I mean, all of a sudden they were more formed. I didn't change my diet. It was just, it was really interesting, but it's just, it was like a pleasure to poop all of a sudden. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. um, but I've also had some people that have experienced, uh, diarrhea, um, constipation, probably prob- too. probably some headaches, yeah. um, constipation. So this is so safe and all it's doing nothing except for improving communication. What's happening there? Do you think? Yeah, it's a perfect question. I'm so glad you brought that up. So, um, when you suddenly fix the, the gut membrane, the very first thing that happens is you build an electrical charge across that membrane effectively. You can see this in our peer-reviewed journal articles where you literally measure the electrical charge that's held across the membrane. You add restore and suddenly that number goes way up. You add roundup and it suddenly drops. You add restore and roundup and it improves still. And so, Are you talking about a resting membrane potential? Is that what... Uh, resting membrane potentials across a single cell. Okay. And in this case, we're looking across a cohesive gut membrane. So it's like okay. looking across the whole cell membrane and the oh. whole membrane of the gut. Okay. And so this is called TIR, trans epithelial electrical resistance. So you're looking at an epithelial membrane of thousands or actually more closer millions of cells. And they're in this big carpet, and you measure that as a, a resistance blanket or an insulator hmm. and see how much electrical charge you can hold across to that. Okay. And so that's how we measure that uh, in the labs. And that electrical potential, as soon as your patients start restore, is going to increase. And when that happens, they're immediately, perhaps for the first time in their lives, literally able to pull water effectively across that gut membrane, especially in the colon where we're supposed Mm -hmm. to do all of our water reabsorption. And so what can immediately happen is you leave the stool dry because you just have a dehydrated body your whole life and you just fix the membrane and you suck all that water. Now you've got some dry stool and the patient says they have constipation. Well, actually, they don't have constipation, which is usually a slow movement of the bowel. Instead, they just have dry stools, which might be kind of hard and everything else. Yeah, yeah. And so the way to combat that is just increase water intake 
you can either continue to restore at the same use or you can decrease the use to a lower usage. But, uh, but either way, you just increase the water intake and that will resolve within a day or two. I often will often add magnesium because I like the cathartic function of magnesium and most everybody has magnesium deficiency. So think about a mag supplement and really push the hydration. If you're kind of experiencing more bloating and constipation, you, you're just finally hydrating your body. Headaches are another symptom of rehydration. You're literally pulling water to hydrate the brain into that space for the first time. And the cells have made a bunch of adaptive changes within them. They've actually expressed proteins intracellularly to, to draw whatever trace amount of water they can into the cells. You suddenly flood that system and you get too much water and the cell swell, swells. And so the headache is actually a hydrostatic you know, pressure in the head as you suddenly get rehydration of the brain. So again, you can just back down on the usage or just increase the amount of rest you're getting and get some good sun exposure for a few minutes to get that big burst of uh, the infrared Infrared saunas work really well for that, too. So anyway, there's different ways you could do that. But what we find is usually by the time they're telling you about it, it's already resolved. So they maybe had a couple of days of headache and now it's gone. Mm-hmm. But by and large, we just tell everybody who's going to start Restore. If you, if you put this into play, imagine you've got a thousand cells that are damaged and you put a communication network in a cell. A thousand cells in 70 trillion is no problem. You're not even going to notice that signal. And frankly, that's what happened to me. I started taking Restore and I didn't notice anything particularly. It took me almost three months before I suddenly started realizing that, you know, 10-year-old injuries and stuff were starting to resolve themselves. So it was a very subtle process in my body. But now picture a patient who's had some sort of invasive infection or huge metabolic collapse with diabetes and has peripheral neuritis and all these things. And now you have trillions and trillions and trillions of cells that are damaged and perhaps unrepaired. You suddenly put the communication network up and running. The whole body is screaming suddenly, help. And so the patient is going to suddenly feel the whole immune system mobilize and the whole system's kind of going out of control to say, oh, my gosh, we got problems everywhere. We didn't realize yesterday that we even had. Mm-hmm. And so in those kinds of situations, your sickest patients, an autistic child, for example, in your pediatrics or in your adult population, somebody with chronic Lyme who's annihilated their bacterial population by chronic antibiotics, those two populations are good examples of the kind of super sensitives that they have so much damage done that just tiny usages can often trigger this big repair mechanism to kick into play. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So with the, with the uh, diarrhea specifically, uh, there's probably more than one reason really, but um, just, out right. of, just out of curiosity, could it, could it be if someone kind of has some swelling and stuff like that, could it almost be the opposite of the dehydration so most of the most of the bacterial stuff, I, I'm sorry, most of the diarrhea stuff I ha- think has to happen with uh, bacterial and parasite shift. Mm. Uh, we all have some parasite around. We mm. we have to have these special parasites under our eyelids that protect our eyes. You know, we we have this kind of symbiotic relationship with the parasite world. So we have parasites in our gut of different variants and stuff like that, and they should be subclinical and they should really be helpful to us. But if they start to overgrow or you get yeast overgrowth or you get a couple of weed-like bacteria like Klebsiella, Pseudomonas, or um, the Clostridium is a common one, C. difficile colitis is a common diarrheal illness uh, from hospitals. If you have those weed-like bacteria, when you start giving Restore, immediately you're going to start increasing your microbiome and the microbiome is going to naturally just attack and suppress these overgrown weeds. Mm-hmm. When those weeds get attacked, they make something called lipopolysaccharide, which causes leaky gut. 
and diarrhea. Mm -hmm. And so the stress of that bacterial shift can cause a transient diarrhea to happen as you're starting to check the growth of some of these overgrown species. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay, awesome. Why, why use the nasal spray? So two huge reasons. Number one, when you're taking oral, you're not protecting the nasal membranes. And so whatever leak you have, 70%, 75% of the air we breathe is contaminated with Roundup now. We didn't even mention that Roundup is water-soluble. It means it gets into every piece of the water cycle, which means it evaporates from the soil up into the air we breathe, up into the clouds, consolidates there. 75% of the rainfall that falls in the, in the southern United States is contaminated with Roundup, and so now it's raining on you. And so every breath you take is has got glyphosate in it now. And so those nasal membranes is the first place that leak is going to happen. And so when leak happens with pollen or any dust or uh, skin mites from your cat, suddenly you're allergic. You're having an immune reaction to these things that moments before you breathe Roundup, you probably would not have reacted to. But now that you're breathing and you're leaking all over the place, whatever you breathe, you're going to start to react to. And so the nasal has been a huge boon for just getting that protection, not just into your gut below the esophagus, but get it up into the nasal sinuses. So step one, same tight junction protection through the nasal sinuses so each breath is not doing the harm. Step two is your microbiome of your intestines starts at your sinuses. And so you can start taking oral all day long, but if you've got an entranced, entrenched sinus chronic congestion and inflammation going on, it's going to be post-nasal draining all of the wrong bacteria down into your gut all day and all night. And you can't effectively shift the bacteroides and, and firmicute population in your gut. You're stuck in this fermentation kind of nastiness. You start using the nasal, you start restoring a natural communication network up in the sinuses, you're going to really get back this very neutral environment and microbiome very quickly. This can happen within seconds. And I really encourage people to try that nasal because it gives you whatever you're about to experience in your nasal passages. Now picture that whole thing that you, is much easier to feel up here in your sinuses and head. You're going to now be able to picture that same thing happening throughout your liver and kidneys and all over the body. But it's so palpable when you do it nasally. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so it's not just for seasonal allergies. Not at all. Okay. And then the last piece of that is uh, the blood-brain barrier. Usually to get to the blood-brain barrier, you have to go through the gut lining, across the immune system, into a blood vessel, through the liver, to the liver, to back to the heart, from the heart, through the lungs, back now into the peripheral uh, um, circulation. From the peripheral circulation, you're, you're getting um, to a peripheral nerve eventually or central nervous system in the brain. And so that's all of the steps to get to the blood-brain barrier typically if you're going gut, intestines. In contrast, is the nasal membrane right at the top of your ethmoid plate at the top of the nose is the blood-brain barrier. And so when you take an inhalation, you're immediately getting to that blood-brain barrier and delivering all this communication network directly to that brain environment. And the blood-brain barrier is the most dense area of tight junction expression in the whole body. And so it's an exciting way to more quickly get it to there. When we're using either the oral or the nasal, when you do eventually get to that support of the ba that uh, basic membrane of the blood-brain barrier, that's where we see this sudden shift of kind of uh, lightening of the neurologic confusion and everything else that can come from that chronic kind of static and inflammation from a poor blood-brain barrier. 
So it's just very exciting that the body has all these ways to lift brain fog and all these different things simply by just getting the compartments correct. Once the membranes are intact, then whatever's in your intestines stay in your intestines and your body has the opportunity to intelligently absorb what it needs. That then is then passed through an intelligent membrane of the, or an intelligent layer of the immune system in the gold. That's then passed through an intelligent membrane of the blood vessel, which is then passed through the intelligent membrane of a liver cell. And so you start to see, wow, once you get all of those membranes really functioning well and the extracellular matrix supported, you have so many layers of protection. You have so many layers of intelligence to, to support your life. Hmm. Interesting. All right, man. This has been enlightening, uh, enjoyable. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, last question for you. Do you have a number one health tip for my listeners? Get outside. It's that simple. We have to get back in touch with nature. You do that, it's going to change your life. Awesome. So awesome. Thank you very much, Dr. Zach Bush. I am so appreciative of you having me on, Chris. Best of health to you and all your patients there. Honoring your body's innate healing wisdom. Doesn't that sound great? Thanks for listening in today. To find out more, or if you'd like to order some Restore to try for yourself, just head over to today's show notes at drchrisfrickman.com slash restore. Until next time, here's to your vibrant potential. Visit drchrisfrickman.com for more cutting-edge content, including nutrition and detoxification advice, unique fitness videos, and more.